I get to preach after that. How about that? <laughs> Sarah, if you, uh, where'd she run off to? Is she, oh, right there. If you change your mind about the Congo, we'll hire you here, okay? <laughs> we'd be glad to have you. Stand with me if you would. Uh, open your Bibles, if you would, to Luke chapter 16. Listen, on the chairs are envelopes um, beyond what we normally place on the chair. There's an envelope that is marked missions. I know many of you are going to want to be a blessing to Sarah and um, to the people in the Democratic Republic of Congo. You can give an offering. You can place it in the boxes uh, on your way out. And uh, let's be a blessing to her, give generously. Uh, I think we all can sense God is gonna use her in a very unique and very special way. Luke chapter 16 is where I want to read this morning. And also we're gonna read this one verse that's on the screen from Hebrews 9, 27. This was the verse that we used kind of as our jump off point last week uh, when I began this four week series. We're talking about eternal, um, eternal judgment, heaven and hell. It's not a series that is often preached, not one that I've preached a lot about, but certainly one that needs to be heard uh, today. So in Hebrews 9, 27, uh, the writer of Hebrews says, and as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. And then look with me in Luke chapter 16, and we read these words of Jesus beginning in verse number 19. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and he fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus full of sores who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was when the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom or to paradise, the rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted and comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, father, that you would send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Holy Spirit, uh, we thank you for your presence in this place this morning. And Lord, we take just a moment and we pray for Sarah. We ask God that you would supernaturally bless her and anoint her even beyond, God, what you have already done. 
Lord, we can sense that you are going to use her to make a difference in the young people in Congo. We pray, God, your protection upon her. We pray that you would meet every need. And God, that you would just expedite the process for her to get there so that she can begin sharing the gospel of Jesus with those young people who need to know about you. And Father, I pray in these next few minutes as we look to your word, that Lord, you would anoint me, not because uh, I somehow have deserved or earned that anointing, but because Lord, I recognize that without it, I cannot rightly divide and communicate your word. So would you use me, help me to speak not a single word of my own, but only that which is from you. And I pray, Lord, that you would captivate the attention of everyone in this place today. We know this is a message that is somber. It is a message that is sacred. It is a message, Lord, that is profound in how it captivates and calls and convicts and challenges us. So I pray, Lord, that you would do just that. And that we would all hear the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking to us in these moments that we share together. May we approach your word with a sense that this is a sacred and holy moment as we hear you speak to our hearts. We thank you for that. Challenge us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's turn to someone and greet them or wave at them across the way and welcome one another to Glad Tidings this morning, if you would. So last week, uh, we began this four-part series on eternal judgment with a special and kind of laser focus on heaven and hell. As I shared with you last week, this whole subject of eternal judgment is a somewhat controversial subject in the church today. It is a doctrine that sadly is often mocked, it is often scorned, it is often written off as something that is archaic and no longer for us today. Yet the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27 that I read to you at the outset makes it very clear we all have an appointment with death. And after that appointment with death, the writer of Hebrews says, then comes the judgment. As we learned last week, issues of eternity and reminders of eternal judgment have all but slipped off the radar of the church world today. Many of us grew up with heaven and hell being subjects that we heard about often. We sang about them often, but because of certainly the worldliness of our culture and the internal focus of the church where everything has become about living a better life now, we have almost completely put away the idea of eternity and what that looks like for us. Because that, because of that, we have devalued the importance of being accountable. We've certainly devalued the importance of evangelism and missions, as Sarah has shared. And certainly there has been a devaluing of the pursuit of holiness. Peter writes that everyone who has this hope of Christ's return will purify himself even as he is pure. But if we lay aside the hope of Christ's return and what happens after death, 
and we forget that and we only live about the here and now before long the pursuit of holiness is not something that drives us last week I talked about why judgment eternal judgment is necessary and I share with you four reasons number one The divine necessity for eternal judgment is because of the immutability of God's word. That is, his word does not change. It cannot mutate. The writer of Hebrews makes it very clear that it is God who is speaking that one either receives or refuses. And because God's word cannot change, and because God has promised eternal judgment, divine and eternal judgment is necessary because of the unchangeableness or the immutability of his word. Secondly, we talked about the holy character of God. Divine judgment, eternal judgment is necessary because God is a holy God. And without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. And to enter the presence of God, we must stand in the righteousness of Jesus. Habakkuk talks about the pure eyes of God and that he cannot look on evil. The holy character of God makes eternal judgment divinely necessary. Number three, we talked about the absolute justice of God requires that eternal judgment follow death. In Hebrews 12, 25, the writer says, See that you do not refuse him who speaks, for if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth. That's when God spoke through Moses on earth to the wilderness generation. If they did not escape, how much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven? Because God is just and because God judged those who refused to listen to the voice of God when Moses spoke to them on earth, how much more if we reject the salvation offered in Jesus Christ. God is a just God and he must judge because of his justice. And finally, divine necessity for eternal judgment is a reality because of the gracious promise of God. The writer of Hebrews says, we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, so let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. He's given us this gracious opportunity, and if we reject that gracious opportunity to draw near, we cannot help but experience judgment. In this series, over the next three weeks, I want to discuss the outcomes of divine judgment. In two weeks, two weeks from today, I'm going to talk about specifically heaven. Next week, I'm going to talk about the judgment seat of Christ, which is a judgment for all believers. Everyone who is at the judgment seat of Christ will ultimately go to heaven, but it will not be a party at the judgment seat of Christ. Our motives will be judged. Our actions, what we did and we did not do, those things will be judged at the judgment seat of Christ. We'll talk about that next week. But today, um, I have the rather somber task of talking about hell, the eternal judgment of the wicked, a subject that it seems like we don't talk about at all any longer, and yet it is crucial to the gospel message. As I begin to talk about hell, let me talk about some extremes that we would want to avoid. There are some that absolutely are thrilled with the idea of graphic descriptions of the flames of hell and the torment of the doomed and the damned. And certainly that must not be our entire message, but on the other end of that spectrum, there are those that want to avoid it altogether. They don't want to talk about the reality of hell. One of the things that I came to realize as I was preparing this message is 
that this is a message that's difficult for me to preach. It's difficult for me because I've pastored now for 36 years. And the reality is that if God's word is true, and I know that it is, I have preached to people. I have pastored people who chose to reject Jesus Christ and have now passed on to eternity and are today experiencing the judgment of eternal hell. That's a hard reality. It's a hard reality to know that I will still preach to people who will hear the message of the gospel and who will reject that message and who will spend eternity in hell. It is not a message that is fun or enjoyable to discuss, but we must be true to God's word. What God says about heaven, what God says about hell, we too should say. Let me share with you some statistics that you would want to consider. I'm surprised by this, but 89% of Americans, when polled, believe that there is a heaven. 73%, I was totally shocked by that, of Americans believe that there is a hell. Surprisingly, that group has gone up in the last 20 years from between 50 and 55%. Now, 73% of Americans believe that there is a hell. However, when those same people are asked, if they would go to heaven or hell, 76% of those people say they would go to heaven. Only 2% say they would go to hell. 4% say they would go to purgatory. 12% somewhere else and 6% don't know or refuse to answer. The discrepancy is certainly hard to reconcile with the words of Jesus. Jesus gives only two alternatives. Look at the words of Jesus. These are red letter words. Enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. Jesus makes it clear there are but two choices. Two options, there is a road that leads to eternal destruction and one that leads to eternal life. So let me share with you three issues. They're all very simple. I won't be lengthy this morning. But three issues about hell. Number one is the reality of hell. It is clear that Jesus believed in hell. As a matter of fact, Jesus talked more about hell by far you can look it up yourself, than he did about heaven. He warned people of the danger of hellfire more than he invited people to come into eternity in heaven. As a matter of fact, most of what we know about hell comes from the words of Jesus. He's the one that gives us insight and understanding into what hell is all about. The apostles in the early church believed in hell. Protestants and Catholics, Orthodox churches have all historically agreed on the reality of a place that is called hell where people will, who have rejected Christ, spend eternity. When we read our text in Luke 16, most commentaries suggests that the words of Jesus are really a parable. You know what a parable was? It was a story that told a lesson. Most commentators would suggest that this story in Luke 16 is a parable. 
Let me just mention two or three things to you. These actually, I borrow these from Ray Pritchard. First of all, he notes it is not called a parable. There's nowhere in this narrative that Jesus says this is parabolic teaching. Secondly, he notes that if it is a parable, it is the only parable of Jesus that has a name in it. Jesus begins this story by saying there was a man by the name of Lazarus. Very clearly, it does not seem illustrative. He is speaking about a person. And then thirdly, Pritchard points out, even if it is a parable, it is not just fanciful truth. Jesus is teaching something very important about the eternal destinies of those who die with and without God. Let me share with you seven things very quickly, and I'll just run through these about the reality of hell. You may want to jot these down if you don't have the notes. They're really very simple, but these are things that that emerge right out of this text in Luke 16. Number one, whether in the torment of hell or the bliss of heaven, those who have died are still very much alive in eternity. The rich man wants to be where Lazarus is. He sees him. He is alive. He is talking to Abraham. He is not asleep. He is not unconscious. He is very much alive there. Lazarus in the bosom of Abraham or in paradise is very much alive as he is able to dip his finger in the water. And Lazarus wants him to come and put that water on his tongue to cool him. It could not happen. He lifted up his eyes and saw, the text says, very much alive. Secondly, the dead continue to have their personalities and their personal character. Lazarus and the rich man were still Lazarus and the rich man. They were not changed. Thirdly, both those in heaven and in hell maintain their bodily faculties. They see They taste, they touch, they recognize, they remember, they reflect. Lazarus in hell remembered that he had five brothers and he knew that unless someone got the message to them, they would end up spending eternity there as well. They beg, they suffer, they think ahead. The rich man did all of those things, but he could not get out. He was trapped. Fourthly, and this is very important, death marks the final separation. What matters, look at me for just a moment, is not what happens to you after you die, but what you do before you die. Because death is the final separation. It is at death. After this, the judgment. It is after death that the final decision is made. It's too late after death. And so death marks the final separation. That's not the important piece. The important piece is what one does prior to death. This determines our eternal destiny. Number five, the dead cannot communicate with the living. It is not a possibility that, 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 Lazarus, or the, that Lazarus could go and speak to the brothers of the rich man. That was not allowed. There can be no communication, the dead with the living. Number six, hell is a place of personal suffering. Three times, Jesus mentions torment, agony, and suffering. And number seven, the damned beg for help 
that does not come. He knew that his brother still had a chance. He wanted someone to help them. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. They won't listen to that. They won't listen to anyone. Hell is a reality that the church can ill afford to gloss over and quit talking about. It's not pleasant, but we owe it to the world to preach the gospel and the truth of God's word. Say amen if you believe that this morning. Francis Chan says, deep down in the heart of every person is a desire to reinterpret Jesus in light of our own culture, our own political bent, or our favorite theological belief. He says, we do the same thing with hell. The question, what is hell, has spawned many answers over the years. For origin, hell was a place where the souls of the wicked were purified so they could find their way back to God. Dante depicted hell as a place under the earth's surface and with nine levels of suffering where sinners were bitten by snakes, tormented by beasts, showered with icy rain and trapped in rivers of blood or flaming tombs. Some were even steeped in the human pools of huge pools of human excrement. C.S. Lewis' portrayal of hell was significantly less creepy. For Lewis, it was kind of like a dark, gloomy city or a place where being fades into non-entity. A happier portrait of hell was painted by the band ACDC, who said, hell ain't a bad place to be. It's where all our friends are. And most recently, Rob Bell, said that hell is not about someday somewhere else, but about the various hells on earth that people experience in this life, genocide, rape, and unjust socioeconomic structures. Look at me for just a moment. You can try to be like one of those people and reinterpret hell if you'd like. You can, you can reinterpret hell after your imagination and what makes you comfortable. But if you're gonna be a person of the word and a person of the book, Hell is real. It's not something we lovingly and excitedly embrace. But hell is real. And it is our responsibility to speak to its reality. Secondly, let me talk about the eternality of hell. It is a place that continues on for eternity. There are those that say hell is temporary. That it only lasts for a season. It is not forever. It is not for eternity. Some believe in a second chance. That is, once in hell, that there will be someone that will come and preach in some way. And there will be a chance to respond to the gospel after the fact. We know that the Catholics have taught not forever, but for some time, the doctrine of purgatory. Where you can just spend a little time there and then get prayed out of that. That's not something that has been part of classical Catholic doctrine forever. People don't understand that. That's something that was added hundreds of years later and nowhere in the scripture. But they believe that there is a way to be prayed out of that. There are others that believe, and this may be the most common and this is certainly has a lot of steam in the evangelical world, and that is they believe in annihilation. That is that the good, the godly, go to heaven, and the wicked simply are annihilated. They just cease to be. The torment does not last forever. People who believe this way generally say it's immoral for someone to spend eternity suffering. 
They feel like it is vindictive of God to make someone spend eternity in hell. And they say that it is not compatible with modern thinking. Another one that has certainly picked up steam and is certainly popular among many evangelicals is universalism. This is the doctrine that was touted by Rob Bell that we talked about just last week. Rob Bell, a very popular evangelical, had a great following, so gifted and so talented, but began to sway from truth and biblical doctrine. And he now espouses what is called universalism, and he writes this, at the heart of this perspective is the belief that given enough time, everyone will turn to God and find themselves in the joy and peace of God's presence. The love of God will melt every hard heart, and even the most depraved sinners will eventually give up the resistance and turn to God. What a nice thing that would be if that's true, but it is not the witness of Scripture. Anything beyond the Word of God is speculative. The Bible uses terms like smoke and fire and burning and torment and the bottomless pit and everlasting punishment, prison, weeping, wailing, gnashing of teeth, unquenchable fire, eternal fire, damnation, burning sulfur. Never does the Bible use a word that even remotely resembles annihilation. Consider the words of Jesus. These are tough words. And these will go away into, look at the word, everlasting punishment. But the righteous will go into eternal life. The word everlasting and eternal, the words everlasting and eternal are identical Greek words. The Greek word is aoneos, aoneos. And it means without beginning and without end, never ceasing. So Jesus is saying, and these will go away into aoneos punishment. Punishment that never ends, is without beginning and without end. But the righteous will go into eternal or aoneos life. Without beginning and without end, never ceasing. Jesus said in Mark 9, 47, if your eyes cause you to sin, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. And look at what he writes, where the worm does not die and the fire is not, and the fire is unquenchable. It's ongoing. And certainly John the Revelator says the same thing. Look at the witness of Revelation. I saw a great white throne and who, him who sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. The witness of scripture is that hell is both real and hell is 
eternal. Before I give you the third point, look right here for just a moment. Can I just tell you very pastorally, um, I, I have read arguments. There are those who have tried to make arguments from Scripture that that hell really does not exist or that it is annihilation or that there is a second chance. They have used Greek words and tried to make them mean something that, that would rid us of the doctrine of hell. I understand that for modern thinkers and those who are learned and those who are educated, this seems to be beyond the realm of possibility. I've looked at all of those arguments. I've considered them. I've studied them. And I can just tell you, the witness of Scripture, like it or not, is that there is a real and eternal hell that those who reject Jesus Christ will find themselves spending eternity in. And let me lead you to the third and final point, and that is the necessity of hell. Because if God is love, one would ask, why do we even have a hell? If God is a loving God that desires that None perish, 2 Peter 3 and verse 9, but all come to repentance. If God gave his son to die for the sake of all humanity, won't God make sure that everyone ultimately goes to heaven? If you want the answer of the progressive or the liberal or those who want to think in a modern way, who want to be accountable to no one, their answer is yes, God will find a way. If you want the answer of Scripture, the answer is no. Why is hell necessary? Let me share with you four or five reasons. Number one, there must be a reward for virtue, and there must be a punishment for evil. Civilizations that have no law are absolutely chaotic. You remove laws today and you do not punish or give consequences to wickedness. It is chaos. It is anarchy. When we don't reward obedience and we do not bring consequences to the disobedient, we have an absolute mess on our hands. We used to say there was a heaven to gain. That used to be a, a line. There's a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. You don't hear that any longer because we don't want to deal with that reality. We live in a world that is upside down. I preached about that. Amos said, we live in a day when that which is right is wrong and that which is wrong is right. That which is evil is good and that which is good is evil. And certainly our culture does not want to embrace or accept this doctrine, but there must be a reward for virtue and a punishment for evil. Secondly, may I suggest to you that ultimate justice cannot exist without hell. The evil of this world, the rapist, the child abuser, those who abduct others, murdering tyrants. Some of those have even gotten away with it in this life. And there seems to be no settling of the score. There has to be a hell to deal the blow of ultimate and final justice. Many of you have watched as people who have lived wickedly seem to prosper and do better than you do. And, and it's a frustrating thing. But heaven and hell meet out the final justice of God. Ultimate justice cannot exist without a hell. Thirdly, hell must exist for unrepentant sinners. If there is no hell... The only place unrepentant sinners would go would be heaven. 
And they cannot go there if they hate and reject Jesus. They would not feel at home in a place like heaven. Number four, we could not fully appreciate our salvation without it. What have we been saved from? We could not fully appreciate that, which leads me to number five, and this to me is the most compelling argument. Hell is necessary for the glory of God to be seen. To be able to witness his justice and his righteousness and his holiness could not happen without the reality of hell. J.I. Packer, one of the greatest writers, you need to read Packer if you get a chance. I've read his book, Knowing God, and this comes from that book, Knowing God. I've read it several times, but he says this, God is not just unless he inflicts upon all sin and wrongdoing the penalty it deserves. While we may think it severe, we desperately need God's wrath. It is a holy and just response to evil to restore the broken world in which we live. Francis Chan was traveling on a weeknight. It was a Wednesday night, and Chan is known in the evangelical church everywhere he goes. He's a popular speaker, always has huge crowds. But he wanted to go to a church somewhere. He just wanted to be in church where he wouldn't be noticed. And so one Wednesday night, he went into a very little small country church. They were so small, they had no musicians on the platform. And and they were still singing a cappella. And Chan said he doesn't have a very good voice himself, but he felt pretty good when he heard some of the people singing around them because they were worse than him. But as he was visiting this small church with no instruments, he heard these words of that song that we often sing in Christ alone. Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Let me pause for just a moment and just do a quick little doctrinal teaching. You know what happened at Calvary? Romans chapter 1 says that God unleashed all of his wrath on ungodliness. He unleashed all of his wrath. The penalty for sin was unleashed on the Son of God. As Jesus hung on the cross, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. How many are thankful for that? He did that for us. Jesus said in John chapter 3, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. What an ugly picture of Jesus, the Son of Man being typified by a serpent. Why is that the case? Because on the cross... Jesus didn't just bear your sin. He didn't just shoulder my sin. He became sin. And he took the wrath of God. And he experienced separation from the Father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He took that for you and me so that God's justice could be satisfied. God is a just God and sin had to be penalized. And so now all who place their faith in Jesus stand as we learned a few weeks ago, 10 feet tall, perfect in Christ. But those who reject him stand on their own merits. Chan writes, while hell can be a paralyzing doctrine, it can also be an energizing one. For it magnifies the beauty of the cross. Hell is the backdrop that reveals the profound and unbelievable grace of the cross. 
It brings to light the enormity of our sin and therefore portrays the undeserved favor of God in full color. Christ freely chose to bear the wrath that I deserve so that I can experience life in the presence of God. How can I keep from singing, crying, and proclaiming the indescribable love of God? Hell reveals the glory of God, for in hell we recognize what we were saved from. Let's just stand with me, if you would. Don't leave. Just stand. Give me four more minutes, if you would. Listen to me. Just focus in this morning. Hell is real. Hell is eternal. Hell is necessary. Can I just tell you, I would be a whole lot more popular without preaching on hell, and I'd be a whole lot more comfortable, and I'd sweat a whole lot less if I didn't have to preach on it. But I would not be doing what God had called me to do. I would not be a faithful shepherd or pastor. If I just glossed that over and made everybody feel like it's just wonderful, and one day we're all going to go to heaven, that would be unfaithfulness. And I want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. R.C. Sproul was asked about the language of Scripture when it describes hell. And they said, isn't some of the language of hell symbolic? And Sproul said, yes, it is. And he went on to say, but remember, if it is symbolic, it's symbolic because the reality is too awful for words. It's not better than this, it's worse. Whatever hell is, it will be so bad that people in hell will pray for fire and brimstone as relief. I asked myself this question when I prepared this sermon. Is there any good news in this sermon? I've given you some pretty bad news for the last 30 minutes. Is there any good news? And the answer is, yes, this is the gospel. There is good news. The good news is that no one has to go to hell. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. But God so loved the world and he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish. Whosoever shall believe, but they will have everlasting life. Every one of us could say, but God, personally, I should go to hell. God, that really is where I belong. But Jesus took my place. And I can tell you, look at me for just a moment. I know and you can know for certain that you are on your way to heaven because Jesus took hell for you if you take or place your faith in him. Jesus did all he could do to make it hard to go to hell. Realize that hell is the default. Hell is the default. If you do nothing, you don't place your faith in Christ, hell is the default. Jesus made a way for all of us to spend eternity with him. Let me just ask you this question. What, what should make our hearts ache when we think about the reality of hell? Can I tell you, I, uh, I came to this conclusion, it bothered me that Many times, my life shows little evidence that I believe in hell. 
When I think about unbelievers, I can very easily brush those thoughts away so it doesn't ruin my day. I can just go on with my life and enjoy and not really be moved by that. But there is a reality we must not ignore. Talking about a hypothetical person is one thing, but what about your family members? What about your neighbors? What about those you work with? What about your best friend that doesn't know Christ? What about those you go to school with? When people say, do you think I'm gonna go to hell? Do we react almost allergically and say, no, there's no such place. New Testament writers did not have an allergic reaction. They didn't try to make God fit in their small ideals. Hell is real. And the apostle Paul said, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Let me close with this story. If you ever watched the movie or read the book, The End of the Spear tells the true story of five missionaries who gave their lives to reach the violence Wa'adoni tribe in the jungles of Ecuador in the 1950s. Nate Saint actually led that missionary team and they were eager to preach and evangelize and win to Christ the Wa'adoni tribe before they all died off from their internal conflict and their civil war. As Nate Saint was preparing for his adventure, his family was gathered around him on the dirt road or the dirt airstrip in front of their house. He kissed his wife goodbye and Steve, his son, looked in to the back of his dad's plane. And he noticed among the gear in the plane, he noticed his dad's rifle. And obviously he worried and he turned to his father and he said, if the Wadoni attack you, dad, will you use your guns? Will you defend yourselves? And Nate Saint looked his boy dead in the eye and responded, son, we cannot shoot the Wadoni. They're not ready for heaven. We are. That's how passionate he was about lost people. I pray that God would stir our hearts. We would recognize the reality of both heaven and hell, but we would not easily get away from the reality of hell. We would say, God, stir our hearts. Bow your heads with me if you would. I want to ask two questions before we go this morning. First of all, let me talk to those of you maybe who have never committed your life to Jesus Christ. There may be those in this room who you're good people. Maybe you're faithful church members. Maybe you're not. Maybe you've never done anything on a grand scale that seems all that bad. But the Holy Spirit is tugging at your heart today and reminding you that unless you place your faith in Jesus, you have a default eternity and it's not eternity with Jesus. And you would just simply say by an upraised hand, Pastor Kevin, would you pray for me today? I'd like to make Jesus the Lord of my life. I want to know before I leave this place today, I want to know for certain that I placed my faith in what Jesus did on the cross. And I want to know for certain that my eternity is going to be with him. Is there anyone in this room that would raise a hand and say, would you pray for me? I don't want to leave this building without knowing for sure that my heart is right with Christ. Anyone that would slip up a hand, I'd love to pray with you. Anyone in this place, anyone in this room. Let me ask a second question then. How many with your head still bowed would say, Pastor Kevin, I know that heaven and hell are reality. Honestly, my heart has not been stirred like it 
needs to have been stirred over these last months or years, maybe never in my life, to accept the reality of a hell that I have a responsibility to do my best to save people from. But today I want to commit myself by an upraised hand to saying, God, stir my heart. I want to give more faithfully to those who are going to share the gospel. I want to share the gospel. I want to share. I want to always be ready to give a reason for the hope that lies within me. I want to be ready to give a witness to the gospel of Jesus. I want God to use me so that friends and family members, co-workers can know Christ and can be assured of an eternity with Jesus. How many would raise their hand and say, that is the desire of my heart. God, stir my heart so that I can more faithfully share your word. Father, today I thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you that um, your grace was demonstrated to us and that while we were still sinners, you died for us. What a difficult subject it is when we talk about the reality that friends and loved ones may miss out on eternal life and may instead experience eternal damnation. But Lord, you've made a way and you've called us to walk in obedience to that way and share your love with others. So stir our hearts to witness, to intercede, to pray for the lost, to give others might come to you. Pray this in Jesus' name.